welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week is the first of five weeks of Plenary Session where I'm out of town. I'm traveling. I'm in Australia right now. At least I should be. This week, you're in for a real treat. We have Dr. Robert Hirschdick, who is a legend at Northwestern Medical School, where I trained. He is a consummate internist and the author of many, many funny, sharp, and clever commentaries that appear in places such as JAMA's Peace of My Mind. You won't want to miss this discussion. And of course, we have a question of the week while I'm gone. Gotta stay sharp on those questions. But don't worry, even though I'm gone, you're still going to get your weekly plenary session for the next five weeks. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back with Ian Straley for question of the week. This is inspired by, but in no way based on, the US Only Step 2 CK. Ian, it's great to have you back in the studio. Good to be back once again. It's been ages since we've seen each other. Long time. Long time. So what do you got for us this week on question of the week? All right, so this time we have a nice uh, kind of tie-in with your podcast. We've got a epidemiology question. Good, the only questions that that God intended, the good questions. Go ahead, let's see what you got. The preferred. The preferred, of course. <laughs> Maybe a question that I'll know the answer to. Okay, so researchers are interested in a new medication for elevated total cholesterol reduction. Mm-hmm. So they conduct a double-blinded randomized control trial. Mm, my favorite kind. The best kind, preferred study, mm-hmm. with 1,000 patients above the age of 40 with a total cholesterol greater than 200. Mm-hmm. These patients are given either 30 milligrams or 60 milligrams of the study drug, or they go to the standard of care arm on a well-studied statin. Okay. The results for both doses of the study drug are as follows. For the low dose, the relative risk compared to the statin came out at 0.8, and the 95% confidence interval from 0.6 to 1.1. Okay. For the high dose relative to the statin, the relative risk was 0.4, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.2 to 0.7. Okay, so what is the correct explanation of the study's results? Option A, neither study drug had a statistically significant effect on cholesterol compared to the statin. Option B, the high-dose study drug is the best option for treating elevated cholesterol in at-risk adults. Option C, compared to the statin, both drugs significantly lowered total cholesterol. Or option D, compared to the statin, the high-dose study drug significantly lowered total cholesterol. Hmm, I see. 
Okay, so let's see what we got here. We've got a randomized controlled trial, double-blind RCT, which is the gold standard, my favorite kind of studies. And we got 1,000 people over the age of 40 with total cholesterol that is a bit high, over 200. But it doesn't tell me the LDL or HDL, but let's put that aside for the second. And they are randomized to either 30 milligrams or 60 milligrams of the study drug, or they get standard of care. So it's a three-arm randomized controlled trial. I see. And the results are the relative risk of a 30 milligrams of novel agent versus statin is 0.8 with the primary endpoint of cholesterol. I assume that's the primary endpoint of the study. Yes, total cholesterol. Uh-huh. And the 95% confidence interval is 0.6 to 1.1. So it spans one. That's the point they're showing you here. In the high-dose novel compound group, the relative risk is 0.4. Um, and the 95% confidence interval does not span one. It's 0.2 to 0.7. Right. Interestingly, these 95% confidence intervals and the point estimate are actually not symmetric, huh? That point 0.8 is not directly in between 0.6 and 1.1. They've added on a little bit on the end. And point 0.4 is 0.2 away from 0.2, with 0.3 away from 0.7. So this is a little strange confidence interval, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to rerun my stats on this, but I'll, I'll let them have this. I'll forgive them Maybe that. some rounding error, yeah. Maybe some rounding error in this study. Okay, fine, fair enough. Uh, the other thing that jumps out at me is that you've got 1,000 people who are over the age of 40 uh, with elevated total cholesterol, and you are picking a lousy primary endpoint, which is total cholesterol, which is a surrogate endpoint, of course, and is not clinically meaningful. It's not what people really care about. They should have picked a primary endpoint of, of course, composite cardiovascular events or maybe even overall com- mortality. Yeah, all-cause mortality. All-cause mortality. But, you know, that's not going to get you far on the boards when you start grumbling about the question. you got to answer the question. <laughs> that's okay. True. So what are my options? Neither study drug had a statistically significant effect on cholesterol compared to the statin. Okay, I don't think that's true. High-dose study drug is the best option for treating elevated cholesterol in at-risk adults. Uh, I think that's a difficult thing to say um, because this is only going against one well-studied statin, but which well-studied statin is it? Is it, um, say, placebo statin or lovastatin? Oh, I call it placebo statin, but you call it lovastatin. Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it a potent statin, like Resuva or uh, Atorva right. or Pitava? And the answer is we don't know. So it's hard to say that you know any of these is the best. Um, compared to the statin, both drugs lowered total cholesterol. And I think what they're trying to point out here is that one of those confidence intervals spans one. So that would be, um, it would be dangerous of you to say that it's significant lowered total cholesterol when the confidence interval uh, spans one. Uh, but the high-dose study drug confidence interval does not span one, so it does lower total cholesterol. Okay, well, so I think the answer to the board's question is compared to the statin, the high-dose study drug significantly lowered total cholesterol. What do you think? Yes, that is the right answer. Okay, phew. Now, so, should I say what I think is wrong with that? Yeah. Now, now they're doing a three-arm randomized controlled trial, and actually, <laughs> I think what they should have done is that you got to get into the protocol. Now, does the protocol say that um, both of these drugs will be compared against a statin with no uh, uh, adjustment for multiplicity, uh, or? Uh, is there going to be some multiplicity adjustment or is there going to be a hierarchical statistical procedure? So I would say this question, in addition to having asymmetric confidence intervals by some interesting world, uh, also suffers from lack of pre-specified statistical plan. Uh, so I'm going to pull up my SAP on this study mm-hmm. um, before I give it my vote of confidence. 
What's an SAP? Statistical analysis plan. So okay, it's a good okay. it's a good point, which is I guess I'd say probably what the boards wants you to know is that it is generally accepted, although not always the case, that a, a p value uh, less than 0.05, which is our nominal statistically significant threshold, and a 95% confidence interval that does not cross one, those are generally considered sort of interchangeable things. Those are both the metric of significance. Your 95% confidence interval does not span one, or the p-value is lower than that threshold. Uh, but there are perhaps a few cases where that is kind of divergent. Uh, the conference interval may touch one, but the p-value may be significant or something, you know, just on the fringe there. Mm-hmm. They don't always line up eye to eye. Uh, but I think the real takeaway message, the, the beyond the board's answer, is that statistical significance in a prospective study uh, is really based on how the authors pre-specified how they would look at the statistics. So when they sat down before, ideally, they even enrolled the patients, what did they say they wanted to find? And did they meet that mark? What was the pre-specified mark? Um, And when you start to have more than one comparison, when you start to probably look at the data at more than one time point, so, you know, if you look at the data after six weeks and 12 weeks and 18 weeks, and you have three arms of a study, now there's lots of ways to look at the data. So did Mm -hmm. the 30 milligrams beat the statin on day on the 18th week or did it on the 12th week, you know? So you have to kind of- Yeah, and for each one of those, each one of those analyses, you have to, if you're applying multiple analyses, then you have to correct because- The multiple looks. The chances of finding a spurious event go up the more analyses you do. Right, exactly right, exactly right, Ian, that the more times you get to look at something, the more times you get to yank on that slot machine, the more times you're going to get three cherries. And and that is why peer review is an ineffective solution, because actually, even <laughs> no matter how bad those three reviewers are, you keep pulling on that slot machine, you're going to get three cherries, you get that paper accepted. Right, right, right. Well, but this is a great question, Ian, so thank you for coming on for Question of the Week. You're welcome. We'll see you next time. Next time. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ, joined via Skype by Dr. Robert Hirschtick. Dr. Hirschtick is Associate Professor of Medicine at Northwestern University. Uh, he did his training at Evanston North Shore Hospital, and then he went on to join the faculty at Northwestern University. And he was, in fact, my attending when I rotated at the VA clinic uh, many years ago, um, now almost a decade ago. Um, and he's somebody I've long admired both for his clinical decision-making and his bedside manner, which is superb, but also his writings, which have been a continual source of delight. And recently, he's turned his talents uh, to YouTube and has a, a very interesting channel on YouTube, which we're going to talk about as well. But Dr. Hirschtick, thank you so much for joining us on Plenary Session. Good night. Good morning. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it as well. So I want to jump in and start by talking about a paper you wrote in 2006 entitled Copy and Paste. Um, this was, I think, at the time, it was almost ahead of its time. It was one of the first sort of calls, uh, recognitions, uh, that the EMR's copy and paste function is going to be problematic. Here's something you write. Uh, The second and more virulent feature of EMR is copy and paste. The copy and paste command allows one day's note to be copied and used as a template for the next day's note. Ideally, old information and diagnostic impressions are deleted and new ones added. In reality, however, there is no deletion, only addition. Daily progress notes become progressively longer and contain senescent information. The admitting diagnostic impression, long since discarded, is dutifully noted day after day. Last month's echocardiogram report takes up permanent residence in the daily results. 
Giselle section. Complicated patients are on post-op day two for weeks. One wonders how Utilization Review interprets such statements. Um, and it goes on from there. And of course, it's funny and it's also sort of... Um, uh, sort of a meta parody because throughout the article you copy and paste what you've written and you elaborate upon it uh, thus the reading the article itself is like the experience of reading one of these EMR notes these bloated recursive incorrect and internally in contradictory EMR notes um, and I guess I wanted to ask you first um, uh, when did you first sort of sort of get an inkling that there's gonna be an issue with the with the EMR and copy and paste was it early on uh, yes. Well, um, let me come back to your, your yeah. question. But I, first, I want to give a shout out to someone who was an inspiration for me, Frederick Brancati from uh, Johns Hopkins, who you may be familiar with. He, about 30 years ago, late 80s, early 90s, wrote a series of articles in JAMA, which were hilarious. Uh -huh. and, and they were satiric, and they, they poked fun at us, and, and, and they poked fun at pomposity. And these were eye-opening articles to me. I didn't realize you could actually have humor in medicine and medical <laughs> literature. Uh -huh. And and I applaud JAMA then and now for, for writing his papers. And uh, he, sadly, Dr. Marcotti passed away prematurely a few years ago. But he had a wonderful wit and a wonderful manner. And, and a quick anecdote, he wrote a very famous paper called The Art of Pimping. Oh, which, yeah. as its title implies, talked about how you know pimping takes place on the wards. And he made up this whole history of pimping uh, going back to the 19th century and how it arose in Germany. And he, he coined this German uh, word, uh, Pumpfraga. There's no such word. But he invented but it. But translated as pimp question in <laughs> German. And, and it's hilarious. But what's funny, I'm, I'm aware of at least two highly regarded uh, physician authors who took his paper literally and they talk about pimping and they <laughs> cite his actual history <laughs> and they cite and, uh, this German history uh-huh yeah and when when the first one came out several years ago I, I said well maybe I got it wrong and I wrote Dr. Bronchiti I said this was all satire and made up right he said of course <laughs> said, well you need to be aware that people are quoting you literally so mm -hmm. they worked that out but anyway a big shout out to him he was an inspiration but now, getting back to your question, yeah, I, I, you know, for trainees today who have always been with electronic medical records, maybe hard to appreciate. But when we were in the transition phase about 15 years ago from going to paper charts to electric charts, it became pretty obvious early on that it was an entirely different animal, and the things that were being recorded in electronic form. Uh, didn't have a lot to do with what, what was actually going on with the patient. It was all about how can one most efficiently uh, cobble together a note. And, you know, doctors are smart people. They figure out, hey, why should I start from scratch every day? Right. I'm just going to, you know, repeat yesterday's note, which is not inherently evil. It's the failure to edit yesterday's note and update it, which is evil. And, yeah, so it's sort of exploded. Uh, within a short period of time, and it became obvious to many of us that, hey, this is not good, and I thought I'd put those thoughts on paper. I think you, you know, you talked about so many of the of the of the truths about the EMR. Uh, you even call them mutations in the form of erroneous statements are incorporated into the propagating propagating note chain, much like our own DNA. These mutations build up and then they persist for decades. Um, so you know, things that are forever incorrect are carried forward in these EMR notes. And we often see that when you 
when you actually go over an old note with a patient who who has a completely different recollection of events as as what's been documented. But I'm struck mm-hmm. by even sometimes the very simple things that uh, in the same note, a patient can be post-op day three, four, and six on different occasions and different locations in the note. They're on multiple different post-op days, depending on which paragraph you're reading. Um, mm-hmm. The other one I love is patient presents uh, with um, fever and cough. Uh, that's carried forward even long after we know the diagnosis was pneumonia and long after their hospital stay was complicated by, uh, you know, DVT and pulmonary embolism. It still says at the top of the note that it was that fever and cough, uh, even though we've made the diagnosis since then. And I think um, that just speaks to the fact that, I don't know, I think, you know, some people say the EMR is a double-edged sword and you give him credit here. But when I started at University of Chicago, it was only handwritten notes. And I honestly think that I enjoyed it better back then because every day I had to write only what was on the forefront of my mind. And I couldn't copy forward because my hand would hurt. Um, you know, I, there's only so much I could write. And yes, it was hard to track down these notes and it was hard to read through them. But when you actually did get the note written by, you know, a good resident or a good internist, uh, two pieces of paper would tell you everything you needed to know. Yeah, I, I have a couple points. One, I agree. When when you're writing notes by hand, the incentive is toward brevity. Yes. <laughs> you want to make it short. You want to make it quick. You know, your hand hurts after a while. Um, the opposite incentive is in place with EMR because you, if you're going to copy and paste yesterday's note, now it takes extra effort to go back and delete things yes. and edit things. And I know in one of your podcasts in the last few months, you you quoted uh, Mark Twain. I, I've seen this quote also uh-huh. attributed to Voltaire. Yeah. You know, I... I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I'm writing you a long letter instead. <laughs> yeah. Point being, it takes a lot of thought uh-huh. to just distill things down to the important points. It's much easier just to write everything, especially with the electronic record. And then with, with regard to the other point about post-op day X, I have an anecdote about that. I was called in to see a surgical patient for, um, I was actually on the palliative care service. And I'm, I'm reading the notes, and uh, the most recent note said post-op day two. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of odd. Why we're getting called kind of early on someone who was just operated on a couple of days ago. <laughs> and I, but I went in and talked to the patient and the family. And early on, I said something like, "Well, you know, it's only been a couple of days since the surgery." And I got you know these weirdest looks from all of them. And when they could gather themselves, they said, "Doctor, excuse me, it's been 60 days since the surgery." And you know, of course, at that point, I lost all credibility. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, I wasn't going to say, "Oh, well." Uh, the resident's note, uh, you know, misled me. I couldn't say that. But what could I say to them that that excused it? There was nothing. So you learn early on with EMR. Uh, don't also with written notes, but I think much more with EMR. Don't trust everything you see necessarily. You know, trust but verify. I guess. I wonder if this problem could have been averted if we didn't tie our notes to billing. If notes could actually serve the purpose of communicating just among doctors. And if billing could have been something totally separate, we might not have gotten into the situation. Or do you think that even then, uh, because we'll follow the path of least resistance, our notes would become bloated? Uh, no, I think you make a great point. And uh, yes, if, 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 if notes were not tied to billing, there'd be less incentive to do so. Although, interestingly, when we've had several house staff meetings about this, and residents will say, gee, I, I thought I... I thought our program directors wanted us to put all this stuff in there. And, you know, residents, are, they don't really care about billing. They, they may have an eye toward the future, what's going to be necessary. Right. But they're not incentivized in that direction. They thought that that's what the higher-ups wanted 
for a good academic thorough note. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, not necessarily so. And I always thought a wonderful solution would be, hey, just limit the length of the note. Uh, however one wants to define that. Because people have actually tried to uh, forbid copy and paste electronically. Yes. So you can't do this. And in the few hospitals that this has been tried, there's there's been massive physicians re- revolt. <laughs> really? You know, so forget that. So that that's a hard sell. But what what it's very doable, I'm told, that I'll, I'll suggest a couple of arbitrary uh, limits. How about two computer screens for an, admission, an initial HP <laughs> right. and one computer screen for a follow-up progress note? Right. You know, I, that that's doable. Yeah. And I think that forces writers to say, okay, this is not important. I can delete it. To, to your earlier analogy, I, now that we know the patient has pneumonia, it's, it's not that relevant that he showed up you know, three days ago with right. cough and fever. Right. Let's get rid of that. The the CT um, angiogram was normal. I'll get rid of rule out PE from my differential diagnosis. And I think that forces writers to really say, this is important, I'm going to include it, versus this is unimportant, I'm going to delete it. I think that um, the way in which the EMR has become bloated, um, one of the things that it's created in providers that we don't recognize maybe as much is that when I'm asked to consult on a patient that I've never met before, five years ago, the first thing I would read would be the notes of the doctor who've taken care of that patient all these years. That would be the first thing I went for. Now, the first thing I go for is I read all of the PET scan reports and the PATH report. I read the reports from the departments over time. And only then do I look back at the note. And I think that's in part because the notes have become bloated monstrosities with you know contradictions. And I think that, I mean, it's not a good thing that the doctor's note is not the first place I want to look anymore. It's not a good thing that I'd rather sort of invent the wheel myself and look through the diagnostic studies and and then try to imagine what might have happened and only then look at the note and then only then go talk to the patient and try to find the real story out of what happened over these years. Um, But I think it speaks to the fact that the notes are not only uh, contradictory and problematic, they're also very, very long. I mean, seven, eight, nine-page notes that it's very difficult to read, uh, you know, when when you want to go talk to somebody in 15 minutes. Yeah, it's a sad comment, but but I, I agree. You you know it's going to be low yield to to try to bring yourself up to speed by by reading such a note. Now the writer probably thinks I'm giving my consultant an eight or a nine yes. page note. What more could he or she want? Wouldn't they say no? Because that's the opposite of what you want. So I agree with you. I would mod- that those notes are not very helpful. I usually you can identify certain writers. Uh, Sometimes attending, sometimes residents or consultants who who you know have a gift for brevity. Yes. And if you see they've written a note recently, you you go for that. I like to think I'm one of those. <laughs> I write notes. Uh, I when I write my daily progress notes, I really try to model what I'm talking about here. I'm just going to give fairly short. These are the issues. Here's what I think's going on. Here's what I think we should do about it. And it's very gratifying to me when residents and students will say. Wow, I really like your notes. That helped me put things in perspective, uh, which I was just glowing because I write the notes largely for myself to force myself to organize my thinking and to force myself to commit to certain diagnoses and commit to a plan of action. Because if you're just going to put down gobbledygook and copy and paste all these long reports and copy and paste your old assessment and plan, you can kind of avoid decision making. Right. You do this consciously. But but it, it happens. 
And yeah, so you referred to my first paper, Copy and Paste, which dealt with that issue. That And interestingly, you're right, that essay itself continues to repeat itself mm-hmm. like the notes do. And I had several people email me saying, loved your paper. It's too bad they're... JAMA made mistakes in reproducing it. <laughs> they didn't see it. <laughs> it's like, no, that was intentional. And you're like, let me tell you about the history of pimping as long as you uh, believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was it. So, but then I wrote uh, several years later a follow-up piece called John Lennon's Elbow, yeah. which addressed more what you're talking about, the, the actual length of notes. Uh, and and the analogy to John Lennon's Elbow, he very famously in, in Beatles concerts, they would have 50,000 people and screaming their heads off so no one could hear the music and john lennon at one point said well it doesn't matter anyway and he started playing the organ with his elbow (laughs) and but no one could hear it Uh so my analogy was wow you notes are like you have very talented people writing these worthless notes analogous to worthless organ music and no one seems to care right Oh, that last part is not true because a lot of people care. Uh huh. A lot of people are trying to do something about it, but it's it's very much an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle, and let maybe say the administrators don't care as much as other physicians. A handful of physicians still care. Um, the other thing it makes me think about is, you know, a couple years ago when I was reading a lot of notes, sometimes I would see decision making that I'd say, "What the heck is this? Like, why did they do this?" And then I was like, you know what? I'm sick of reading these notes. They're so long and bloated anyway. Let me just call these people. So I started calling other attendings and say, you know, when you saw this person a month ago, you guys did this. What, what, you know, what, what, what were you thinking? And I'm always astounded. They had good answers. They had really thoughtful, you know, clever reasons why they chose one path, not the other. I mean, with rare exception, people were being pretty thoughtful about it. But when you look at the note, I never would find that, that honesty or that transparency in the note itself. And so then I made a concerted effort to kind of like write like at the end of a note saying like, look, um, here's what I think is actually going on. And, and if I don't know, I'd say, look, I'm between this and this, but this is the best way to f- sort of thread the needle on this issue. You're going to do this while we wait for this test. And if it comes back, we're going to change this way. You know, I'd really be very sort of first person kind of tell you what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a lot of students come to me and they say, it's crazy. I was reading your note and I could, I could hear you talking. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, cause I'm writing it. Like if I was telling you, that's what I'm trying right, to do. Right. Uh, yeah. It's sad that you have to call attendings directly. I mean, the social interaction is nice, but yes. you're not doing that to say, ah, oh, you're doing that to figure out what thing's going on. Yes. And I try to do the same thing with discharge summaries. Uh, uh, you know, I still do my clinical work at the VA, which as an aside, even though the, uh, EMR is so antiquated, it gives you the beauty of free text. You can write what you want. There's no templated phrases. That I think the templated phrases force you to say things that you really wouldn't have said. But I'm I'm concerned that the discharge summaries that the outpatient doc has to look at aren't very helpful. Yes. And aren't very user friendly. So I've gotten into the habit on the day of discharge, I'll write my my attending note, but I'll do it with an eye toward the outpatient doctor saying Here's, here's what we found, here's what the CAT scan showed, here's our discharge diagnosis, these are the tests or results that are pending. And I try to do that, probably half a computer screen, and I send a copy of that directly to the outpatient doc. Mm-hmm. And again, it's been gratifying. I've had so many of them say, oh, thank God. <laughs> I, I found that so helpful, unlike the discharge summary, which had all that information in there, but it was just hidden among all the, all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple years later, you wrote another marvelous piece, Extremities, and this is just a, such a classic. Um, 
this was, uh, it starts out with this anecdote that a medical student is presenting a patient she admitted the previous night. And he, and you write, quote, he also complained of increasing edema in his bilateral lower extremities. And then you write, I was struck by the phrase bilateral lower extremities. Three words, ten syllables. Bilateral lower extremities. Why not both legs? Two words, two syllables. Why had this student, like virtually every student I've worked with recently, chosen this unwieldy phrase? And then you make a point, which is that uh, on the one hand, we use uh, verbose, multisyllabic language to describe very simple things, both legs. Later, uh, somebody presents to you and they say, we have an 82-year-old man with CAD, CHF, COPD, CRI, PVD, and BPH coming in with PND and shortness of breath. Uh, so there it's just alphabet soup back at you. Uh, and, and you're trying to process all of these things, which are very different things. Um, and, then, and then there's some more funny stuff, which I'll talk about in a second. But... Um, uh, what made you think about writing this? Uh, uh, the the presentations you'd heard over the years, uh, they struck a chord with you. Very much so, and particularly that phrase, uh, bilateral lower extremities. I mean, when even now, I I, I, I tingle a little bit, but not you know in a, in a pleasurable way. Uh, when I hear it, it's like, why are we why are we saying that? You know, why why would anyone use such an unwieldy phrase? It adds nothing yeah. to our understanding. Uh, and I go on in that paper to talk about possible ulterior motives when mostly when, especially for students and, and younger doctors, when you're talking to family, boy, if you throw out a phrase like that, family and friends, whoa, my son, the doctor, my my daughter, the internist, yes. look at that. <laughs> All that money's going to good use. I had a lower extremities. Now, what does that mean? Uh, oh, dad, you know, so I think that has value. Plus, like negative value, but we get into this habit, and then we go to the bedside, and we sometimes those words pop out. Um, hey, Mr. Jones, I'm sorry that uh, you know you came in because there was swelling in your bilateral lower extremities, and so far that's been resi- what the heck are you talking about? Yeah, Doc? yeah. And I've I've I try to do this regularly now. I I'm tempted to do it in the room. I try to bite my tongue, but I'll go out in the hallway and say, okay, you know, I got to give you a jargon alert. You said such and such word, and and then you also did this. And of course, what do patients do? It's a rare patient to say, oh, "Excuse me, doctor, can you stop a minute? Use the word with which I'm not familiar." Yes, that virtually never happens. Yes, much more commonly is patient nods their head with a kind of a perplexed smile on their face. You know, and they're not getting it. Yeah. So I, I as I've gotten older and maybe grouchier, I'll. I'll Sometimes within the room at the bedside itself, I'll call out a jargon alert, and I'll say, you know, no, doctor, so and so. Can you can you state that a little in more user friendly terms? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's just something that's drilled into us as uh, medical students that hey, we have English language plus we have medicalese, and you know you need to learn to talk our language that is medicalese. And and doctor to doctor, healthcare person, healthcare person. Medical language is, is by and large very helpful, mm-hmm. but you got to be able to speak both languages and pick your spots. Yes, I I, I agree. And sometimes I even think um, every once in a while you have a patient you take care of who's a physician or a nurse or somebody in healthcare, and 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 I feel like it's easy to lapse into these kinds of languages even with them. But part of me wants to say that even in those moments, I try very hard to talk to them like I would talk to any other patient, which is try to explain everything in as simple as I can and as plain English as I can. Because, I mean, I guess I'd say that it kind of puts an undue burden on that person who's still a, in that moment a patient. Um, and still, I think, you know, all of us, even doctors, 
you know, even I like to hear things more simply. I don't want to hear anything more complex than it needs to be. I want to hear it as simple and direct as I can hear it um, because, you know, my attention is, is not as good as it used to be. You know, it's all, it's all diminishing over time. Um, so I, I don't know the, the value of these kinds of super complicated words that, that say not much. I, I think your example of talking to patient physicians is, is an excellent one because you're right. In that role, in that moment, they're patients first. They're patients, yeah. And I, I've sometimes had students and residents say to me, well, I don't want to talk down to the patient. Uh, they might get insulted. No, no one's going to, uh, in my observation, no one's going to get insulted if you talk plain English and if you try to simplify certain complex issues. Now, it, clearly, you don't want to go overboard and talk talk to people like they're grade schoolers. But uh, yeah, and I've been a, as a physician, I've been a patient on multiple occasions. And it's Especially if it's not in my field, I don't. I don't want them to use jargon. Yeah, you know, I agree with you totally. Talk to me as if I weren't a physician, uh, and and we'll go on from there. No one's going to get insulted. I think that's a good default uh, position to start with. Yeah, I've even had some residents like um, uh, when they know the patient is a physician, they they take some of the decisions they would take to the attending to the patient. What antibiotic do you think we should start? I say, Ooh. I say, if if you're a chef and you go to a restaurant, they don't make you go back there and start cutting the food. And <laughs> come on, you you got to give them the same care that you give anyone else. Like you make a recommendation. Uh, you know, you're not. T- they don't want to work here. They want to get their care here. Yeah. What kind of message is that for the person sitting yeah. in the back? Like, <laughs> wait a minute. If you don't know, you know. You're not exactly instilling a lot of confidence in me here. I know. When I have a 105 degree fever, I'm not sure, so sure I want to be picking which imipenem, you know, which which antibiotic to be given. Right, right. Um, the other thing I loved about this article was um, the, the the talk of uh, anacronym names for trials. You write anacronym trials have have been cited more often than non-anacronym trials, and it has been speculated that some appealing trial names are more likely to garner support than wimpy trial names. Um, and then you write six of the deadly sins have been funded: Casanova, uh, so uh, uh, lust, pasta, uh, gluttony, Midas, greed, uh, sword. Uh, what sword? Uh, 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 violence, anger. Violence, Cadillac, and Paragon. Cadillac Paragon must be green. Is, um, uh, pride. Oh, pride. Uh, Cadillac is um, uh, showiness. I see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so these, but these are actual names of clinical trials. But then sloth. I point out, sloth will never get funded. Yeah, sloth there's no, there's there's no sloth. You're never going to see a sloth trial. Uh, and then you write my favorite sentence. As the Food and Drug Administration imposes stricter truth in advertising regulations on pharmaceutical sponsors, creative trial names will be pre- replaced by more candid ones, such as Blockbuster, Me Too, and Goldmine, which is really the names that we should be using in oncology because those are the, the sorts of clinical trials we're seeing. Um, yeah, most of the new trials fall into one of those categories. Indeed. <laughs> so... Um, uh, you hear this also more and more uh, on on clinical on uh, on the wards. Um, you know, let, let's let's give him uh, the prove it treatment. Let's give him what improve it showed. Let's give him uh, what cabbage what we found in Cabbage Patch. Uh, you know, you hear this kind of language more and more. Um, is it helpful or is it sort of confusing? Uh, I, I I think it's it's not helpful for the conversation. It's certainly helpful for the speaker because the speaker sounds very knowledgeable. You know, if you say, Oh, you know, that trial that was in uh, uh, JAMA two years ago and they, and they showed that, uh, you know, early therapy for HIV asymptomatic was, was better than delayed therapy. All right. Well that, if you're going to go that long, then you have to show that you actually read the trial and you remember the, 
the gist of it. Uh-huh. If um, if you just say, oh, the smart trial, uh, well, then you sound pretty smart. Yeah. You don't have to go beyond that. Everyone assumes you know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. You know, rightly or wrongly, they assume that. Uh-huh. So it substitutes a, a, a short label slash uh, study name for insight and understanding of the study. So that's pretty useful to the speaker. Not, not useful at all for patient care. Yeah, I sometimes um, sometimes ask people when they when they drop all the trial names if you could give us a give us that give us the thirty second summary of that trial. Uh, what ah, <laughs> they were hoping you wouldn't make that particular point. No, they, indeed, they were hoping. They were hoping. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the quick physical examination. Uh, you wrote uh, not that long ago, 2016 in JAMA. Every time I cringe every time I hear the phrase quick physical exam on the wards of our teaching hospital, which is often, may we do a quick physical exam? I have several problems with this question related to what the questioner means and what the patient hears. Uh, so what is it about the quick physical that bothers you? Just a quick physical. Right. Well, uh, yeah, the two things you mentioned, what, what is the patient hearing, uh, number two, and what, is, what does the speaker mean? What, how would you feel if your doctor said, let's quickly do this exam? It's like, well, no, doc, I'd rather you did it slowly and thoroughly than quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't know how the patient can interpret that in, in any way. It's not like the patient is sitting here in the hospital bed or in your clinic exam room thinking, I'm in a big hurry here. I hope the doctor hurries up. No, I <laughs> want you to spend more time with them. Yes. On the flip side, my generous side likes to think when resident entrance says to a hospice patient, let's do a quick exam, I think they mean, we don't want to put you through too much, you don't feel well, we don't want to take up much of your time. They're trying to be thoughtful. My my less generous side thinks a lot of people don't have confidence in their physical exam skills, so let's do it quickly and get it over with so we can get the patient down to the CT scanner and really figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's probably what they're getting at. Let's get the patient down the CT scanner. But, you know, over the years, I've seen a few people undergo CT scans uh, complaining of chest pain or back pain or flank pain. And only later, it was revealed that the diagnosis was shingles, uh, a mm-hmm. diagnosis that's not very apparent on the CT scan, mm-hmm. but would have been quite apparent if somebody actually looked at this person's skin. Right. Um, well, that, the yeah. article you referenced, uh, the quick physical exam, that's how it starts. And this was based on a true story. Uh, patient was admitted overnight with chest pain, an older woman, and you know, rule out MI, rule out PE. And so I'm seeing her on, on morning rounds the next morning. You know, it's always easy for an attending to come in at, you know, by the light of day. Uh-huh. And I chat with her a little bit and I start to examine her and I lower her gown from the neck to expose, you know, discreetly to expose most of her chest. And there was a shingles rash. Uh-huh. And it was obviously shingles. And that was the diagnosis. Yeah. And I didn't say anything because I didn't have to, but I looked around the room and everyone was sort of, you know, looking at the floor. Yeah. And I said, okay. And then, you know, we got out in the hall and everyone said, yeah, I listened to her heart and lungs through the gown. Right. Yeah, I was trying to be discreet, an older woman. Okay, I get that. But I don't know if, again, I don't know if discreet's the right word. It was a shortcut. Yeah, it's a shortcut. You know, it had someone examine the patient properly. And, and that's another point I make in the article, which is borne out by evidence. I think we've lofted the skill in the physical examination to kind of almost mystical proportions like it's very hard and mere mortals can't achieve expertise i think most of the time it's just doing it you know taking a look at the patient uh looking at their skin looking looking in crevices and cracks you know looking in their groin uh and and that same paper i i 
I missed a diagnosis of epididymitis because the patient complained of thigh pain and I did a pretty good thigh exam, but I didn't didn't dawn on me, oh, maybe it's a neighboring structure that's causing the pain. Mm, I see. And, and to your point about uh, imaging, we, we sent the patient down for a CT of, I think we were looking at their prostate, and and they reported epididymitis. I, I found that so embarrassing. Uh-huh. When is, when is, since when is epididymitis a CT diagnosis? Uh, right. <laughs> so I had to, you know, bang myself in the forehead over that one. How, you know, how could I not examine this person's scrotum? Mm-hmm. The, the diagnosis would have been obvious. So the point being, we don't have to be that great at it. That to you just have to look, and very often you'll find, or listen, and very often you'll find something. And so often I find that. Um... Uh, that you know, I see I see cancer patients predominantly in my practice, and I find that sometimes it's something so small, um, the moment where you gently put a hand on the shoulder, and I know so much from one moment because I feel how much weight they've lost. I can just feel it like in an instant through the clothing, and and so I know everything that they've been telling me about how they're feeling, uh, how they're eating, how they're drinking. Um, and it just gives me like a whole nother perspective. Sometimes it's, it's difficult. People dress up in a way that, you know, you don't see how much weight they've lost. You put a hand on the shoulder and you feel uh, the shoulder girdle, you feel the back, you feel the spinal processes. Um, and you know, this is somebody's lost a great deal of weight in a, in a short period of time. Uh, and then you feel the way the clothes fit on their body. Um, and and then, then you do the physical examination. This was just the first thing, uh, the first sort of just reassuring touch. Um, and, and then you often learn something you didn't know when you started. Um, but I think it's so important to do those kinds of little things, um, to actually put a hand on the person. Very much so. And Abraham Verghese has written about this, how hard to quantify, but I accept that it's true that patients are very comforted by that. Yes. Uh, not, not only, you know, a, a thorough, attentive physical exam, not only is that intellectually reassuring to the patient, but I think in a sense, it's, it's comforting to the patient in a physical way. I mean, this is what we as, as doctors have done traditionally. We, we touch patients. Yes. We establish a human connection that way, and, and I, I think that's very powerful. I think that's very powerful. I think, um, yeah, there, there's that, the, the, the physical contact itself can be a reassurance, and sometimes, you know, we've all felt this as a doctor. You put your hand on someone's back to do the physical exam, and you feel them take a deep breath, and you can feel that maybe a little bit of stress was just let out in that moment through that touch. Uh, at the same time, I think it's so important that when you're about to tell somebody you should or should not have a test or a procedure or chemotherapy, um, it, it, it feels like you're, you're, you're saying that with more authority when you've done a good exam. Like what you're really saying is like, I've taken into account who you are. And I'm not saying this having looked at the chart outside and walked in here to tell you what we're going to do. The, I, I'm taking into yeah, account I, who I you are. too. Yeah. yeah. You agree. Yeah. Uh, very much so, and um, I, a couple quick points. One, I, I've over the years learned routinely when I'm going to put my stethoscope on a patient's bare back, I, I always warm it first in my hand. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I rub the, the diaphragm <laughs> thoroughly for about 10 seconds, and, and I think that brings it from ice cold to maybe room temperature. So <laughs> right. it's still yeah. comfortable. Yeah. But I've been amazed over the years how many patients have said to me, oh, doctor, thank you so much. He said, that's so unpleasant when someone puts a cold stethoscope on my back. Mm-hmm. So I th- I've learned that that really sends a powerful message to people like, hey, I'm taking your comfort into consideration. Yeah. Uh, and so I always try to role model that for, for um, residents and students. I said, look, do it this way. And then two, I point about finding little things. There was a wonderful article in JAMA. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author's name about a year ago 
talking about the value of looking at a patient's toenails in the outpatient setting. And the author described this marvelous anecdote about an older gentleman recently uh, became a widower, and he was, I think, a college professor, and came in look, looking very professorial. Had a nice uh, tweed sport coat on with a vest, uh, very well made up. And then physician examined this person and had them take their socks off, and he looked at his toenails, and they were horrible. Mm. They were long, they were bent, and, and then the patient confessed, I, I can't reach down to my toenails to do this. My wife used to help me with this. I see. And that sort of opened the floodgates. And actually, now that we're talking about that, here's all these other things that have sort of decompensated in my life mm-hmm. since my wife passed away. Yeah. It, it, it was a, a marvelous opening to talk about things and address things that wouldn't have been addressed during that visit. And they turned out to be the most important things because the doctor looked at this person's toenails. Mm-hmm. And the author went on to suggest, hey, this is perhaps an unrecognized surrogate marker. I know that's a buzz phrase for you. <laughs> marker. And the author didn't provide you know, any, any data over many patients, but I think his point was well made that, yeah. hey, again, take a look at the patient. He'll, he or she will provide great clues. I know our time is is running short, so I wanted to ask you about your latest project. And this is, listeners can find this on Robiwan on YouTube channel. Um, I just do the spelling, R-O-B-I-E-W-O-N. Yes, R-O-B-I-E-W-O-N. Robiwan. How do you pronounce it? Robiwan or Robiwan? Oh, you have to rhyme it with Obi-Wan. Yeah, so it's Robi-Wan. I think that's the way, yeah. Um, And and this is your, your set of videos called Three Things. Three things about atrial fibrillation, three things about hyponatremia, three things about C. diff. Um, For the PSA, you call it mission improbable, um, secondary prevention after TIA or ischemic stroke. These are little videos. They're all a minute or two minutes long. They're short. Um, They're very creative and and I might even say a little little avant-garde in some some clips. Uh, (laughs) uh, What made you do these videos and and what are you getting at here? Well... uh... For years, I've made uh, handout one-page handouts for common clinical topics on the inpatient service, and you know I posted them uh, online in Evernote. And when I'm starting with a new team, I'll say, "Look, here's here's a link to 30 uh, one-sheet summaries of the things we're going to see. We probably won't talk about all these over the next few weeks, but let's try to talk about several of them." And I've always tried to prioritize within those one-page uh, um, summaries what are the top three things about this particular particular condition that I want the learner to, to go, go away from, maybe even memorize. Because I think we overwhelm learners. And as a learner, I often feel overwhelmed when I go to grand rounds. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful when someone can distill it down. So I, I'm a big believer in trying to get down to three points, some of which are maybe well-known, some of which are perhaps not so well-known. And I've tried to present those in my handouts. So that that's the background. Then as a hobby for really all my adult life, I've always enjoyed making film and making videos. Back in the days of Super 8 film, I would be up late at night, you know, splicing segments together with scotch tape because that's how we did editing those days. Now that it's all online, it's so much easier to do video editing um, uh, with the aid of the computer. So I said, gee, maybe I can take my handouts and make little one to two minute 
educational videos with an eye toward humor, with an eye toward education. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and maybe learners will find it appealing, but the, the number of priorities, let me get my three points out there. Yeah. And, and if the environment of the video, you know, makes it more appealing, so much the better. And I think listeners should take a look. They're, they're, they're quite interesting and they're all, uh, I think plays on, I think, popular TV shows, movies, uh, uh, some that uh, even I, I don't know if I know the reference. Uh, they range from obscure to, to less so. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the H.O. Fib one, which is the first one, it's uh, uh, homage to Bob Dylan and his uh-huh. subterranean homesick blues, which uh-huh. is one of the first music videos from the 60s. Uh-huh. Uh, it's got some Bride of Frankenstein in the background. The soundtrack is is from the Gershwin tune, Fascinating Rhythm. I mean, what could be better than <laughs> linking that to Atrial Finn? Uh-huh. Uh, and so, and then some of them are, are more obscure. So the one I did on PSA screening, and and the data were, were just that released by the you know United States Preventive Health Services one, but it was just a way to reprocess it. And uh, Gurpreet Dhaliwal, well known, I think, to your listeners, yeah. you know, internist extraordinaire at the San Francisco VA, yeah. and a former student of mine. I, I say with great pride, former North- Northwestern student. Oh, was he? I didn't know that. Okay. Oh yeah, he. I knew him when. Uh-huh. Uh, but he, he and I have been been in contact, and he was gracious enough to say, "Hey, I really like the videos." And then he went beyond that and say, "You know, this one about PSA screening." He says, "I think I'm going to use that with my vets and in, in clinic, and I think I'm going to show them this." to help with decision-making. Oh, and, yeah. and, of course, I was very uh, flattered by that, but then I realized, oh, yeah, I based this one on a 50-year-old TV show. That's not going to resonate very well with learners in their 20s. <laughs> uh, they're not even going to get the reference, perhaps, because the TV show is not all like the yeah. more recent Tom Cruise yeah. films. But Gurpreet was smart enough to say, hey, wait a minute, this is perfect. For this age well, group. Yeah. It's the age of where <laughs> PSA screening yeah. is an issue. They might really enjoy it. Now, he hasn't gotten back to me yet as to, to what extent has he done that, to what extent have his patients found that useful. Uh, but that was that was one I missed. I, that, whereas I, I'd like to think some of the others are more suited for the target audience of 20 or 20-somethings. That one, not so much. But others, you know, were based on Mystery Science Theater, for example. Yes. Um, one, my, my wife and I had just recently been to the play, the Buddy Holly story, and I heard one of the tunes. I said, that'll be perfect for a soundtrack. Oh, yeah. and Stroke, because, uh, you know, um, every day it's getting closer. It's like, all right, that's, we're all, we're all of us sitting around waiting for a heart attack, stroke, or cancer, uh-huh. you know, at some point in our futures. Right. Um, okay, the last thing I wanted to ask you about. In one of your articles, you refer to a doctor who wore plaid pants. Mm-hmm. You you speak very I think respectfully of this physician. Who was this physician and and what did this physician mean to you? Uh, Doctor John Clark, uh-huh. with an E on the end, C L A R K E, who you you yeah. probably interacted with. I met. I yeah. Yes, he was less active when you were there. He he was my ultimate role. He was and is my ultimate role model. Uh, he, and he reminds me actually of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and that he's he's tall and lanky. Uh-huh. Number one, he's he's humble, genuinely humble, but on the, outwardly. But at the same time, he's he, he's confident in his own abilities, and he's exceptionally smart and exceptionally nice. And, and patients warm to him immediately. 
And he wore plaid pants, you know, long, decades after, you know, they had fallen out of fashion. Yeah. Uh, but he was, so this was an article, um, Impact Factor, I think, which was the name of that article. Ah, uh, yes. Which, which is basically, you know, the uh, Maya Angelou quote where, where she writes, people won't remember really what you said or what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And that typifies him. I can remember so many things that actually I, I remember so many things that he taught me, but they weren't facts necessarily. They weren't like differential diagnoses. He taught me how do you how do you interact with patients? How do you sit at the bedside? How do you hold their hand? How do you shut up and listen to them and, and let them you know talk without without interrupting? Um, and he also taught me that, and I have to keep reminding myself this is. You know, sometimes in medicine, when you're advocating, you have to be assertive and you have to be impolite. And sometimes, you know, you know, as internists, we like to think of ourselves as nice people and we want to get along. But that doesn't always work. Sometimes you have to be nasty mm -hmm. to consultants mm -hmm. and, and say, no, no, I think you're wrong and I think you need to do this. That doesn't mean it's always going to work. But don't don't just passively smile when someone's a consultant says to you, no, no, I I disagree. So, and this is the nicest guy I know. So he said, sometimes you should be impolite is the word I keep coming back to. Uh -huh. So he taught yeah. me a lot. He, I mean, I've had many role models in my life, but he, he stands head and shoulders above the others. So, and, and I, I think that's something we should all endeavor to do. Yeah. And uh, even there was a wonderful piece in, in the current issue of JAMA by uh, Dr. Carlson. Uh, it, it's a sad piece because she talks about her many significant health issues but what prompted her to write the piece is she is a teaching attending and she's in the hospital when she writes this. And then one of her former students from is now an orthopedic surgeon comes in and talks to her and said, you know, you may not remember me, but you, you gave me some great advice back in the day. And indeed, I, th I think Dr. Carlson remembered the student, but she had no idea what the advice was. But huh. but it was so important to the student or the then student, you yeah. know, so that. Personal moments mean mean a lot. Yeah. So I highly recommend that article to you to people listening. Yeah, and I think that that's that's very well put, and that's the hardest thing to kind of articulate is that you know you learn a lot from books and you learn a lot from lectures and you learn a lot from patients, but there's still a portion of the art of being a doctor that you learn from the handful of doctors who you kind of connected with in your training, and it wasn't everybody that you know you you took a shine to perhaps but for each of us there's some such doctors like for you as dr clark and for me you know i think you're i think you're included in the acknowledgments of my first book because you're one of those doctors for me uh because i really much enjoyed our time together in the va uh when i would go to your hiv aids clinic which is something we didn't have a time to talk about on this podcast but perhaps another day um and i was so impressed by those patients you've taken care of since late 1980s and early 1990s, um, and uh, and the way in which um, you ran that clinic with, uh, I think, a tremendous amount of grace and uh, and with people who were super grateful to have you in their life. Um, so I want to thank you, Dr. Herstick, for coming on the podcast and talking about these wonderful papers. I recommend them to all of my trainees um, as part of sort of a canon of um, of what it means to be a doctor and how you should think as a physician. Um, which is a canon that goes beyond, I think, you know, the, the New England Journal original articles, but a canon that includes these kinds of 
thought pieces, humorous pieces, eclectic articles that I've picked up over the years, um, and uh, and all of your essays make my cut. Uh, so thanks so much for writing them. And I think listeners would love to to check out your your short videos. I thought that they were uh, incredibly interesting and, and humorous. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Dr. Hirschdick. And I thank thank you so much. It's been great fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And bye 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 bye. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.